the Magic of the Spheres podcast. This is Sabrina Monarch, and this is a show about spiritual lifestyle and personal evolution. Welcome if this is your first time here. I'm an evolutionary astrologer, and I started this podcast to have more eclectic conversations about personal development and living a spiritual life. One of the beautiful things about practicing astrology is that it's an art form that brings us into contact with our connection with the cosmos that, hey, it actually does mean something where the planets are located, that that might have some impact. And it's not a causal thing, like because the planets are doing something, it's making things be a certain way. It's more of like a reflection. Um, One of my teachers, Rick Tarnas, spoke about it as, you know, it's not that the clock on the wall saying it's four o'clock makes it four o'clock. It's just reflecting the time. And so thinking about our sensibility as located in a whole or located in an environment is some of what this concept um, in today's episode, Ecologizing Sensibility, will be about. I interviewed Ashton Cole Arnoldy, someone that I met in the master's program of philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness at the California Institute of Integral Studies. We were in the same cohort. And Ashton is an artisan of sensibility. He transcends categories by bringing art and ecological philosophy together in an effort to facilitate the transformation of industrial culture. His mission is to convey a felt sense of ecological existence through multiple aesthetic mediums, including film, essay, poetry, performance, and music. Ashton is currently deepening this mission through his doctoral work in the Philosophy, Cosmology, and Consciousness program at CIIS. In addition to being cohort mates, Ashton is someone who I call a star twin. We're both born on April 6th, though different years, but because of that, we both have 16 degree Aries suns. And we met each other, we converged as you know, initiates into this grad program at the same time, you know, the same year, the same semester. And we had signed up for all the same three classes without knowing each other yet. And we had also been observing consciously the alignments of Pluto and Uranus and how they were, you know, Pluto squaring our suns in Capricorn um, and Uranus and Aries conjunct our suns. I've alluded to 2016 being a really difficult year, um, but I'm getting far enough away from it um, to be able to talk about it. And basically, my dad passed away in 2016, and it was during this time where I was falling really deeply in love with someone, and I had this deep psychic connection with this person, and... Only a few months after my dad passing, um, this person that I was seeing got in a accident and had a head injury. And I'm not really sure if the head injury is part of why we broke up, but our relationship ended. And I went from seeing this person on the dream plane and, you know, giggling in the morning, like, oh, this is what happened in the dream. And we would have the same dream and see each other and talk about what we were wearing and all of that, like recall the same details from the same dream. So it was like, wow, I'm so connected to this person. So intimate Um, to, you know, after his head injury, like I would see him on the dream plane and he would be inanimate or inert. And one time he was like, I don't love you. 
And he was like on this staircase and it disintegrated into dust. So I was broken. Like that was really devastating for me that year, that experience, those two tragedies happening. And, you know, I think that people passing um, is also natural, you know, but there was an air about everything that just felt really tragic and I couldn't understand it. And so I really meditated, you know, in the throes of just some of the most intense pain that I've ever been in in my life. I closed my eyes and thought like, what do I do now? Like what's available to me? What are my options? And the thought go to grad school came up and I, you know, I was considering my life like a dream. If I was in a lucid dream right now, and this is where I stand, what would I do to carry the story of the dream forward? Okay, I'll go to grad school. So applying for grad school and getting ready, like really helped me dig myself out of the deep depression that I was in in 2016. And when I got to school and I met Ashton and experienced this mirroring of, whoa, this other person that I have this connection with, it feels so kismet that we've met. We both have been observing these transits. It really re-enlivened me or gave me a sense of faith because part of leaving town and like moving somewhere and going to grad school, I needed something to look forward to. I needed to do something new with my life. And I also wanted to get away from living in Washington where I was um, because I was so emotional. And it was like this subtle, like, oh, like I am in the right place. This is okay. Um, Which is interesting to think about. So thank you for listening to that. That's a big share. I understand. (laughs) Um, One of the things that I learned in school I'm getting my master's in this program and I'm really, I'm still at it. I have a few credits left and I'm on an online course right now. Um, But I got to walk at graduation and I'm on my way. So I'm not saying I have a master's yet, but um, I learned that philosophy was originally carried in dialogue and that when we converse philosophically with others, we are building sparks and kindling a fire, that this is an act. This is the verb of philosophy. And I really felt this while talking to Ashton. It was really fun and we traveled places together. We got into um, a lot of flights of fancy and thinking about music as a vibrational force and how dinosaurs have eyes the size of basketballs, you know, pterodactyls specifically and what that means, you know. So we, we went out there and it was really fun having this conversation and I'm really excited to share it. You know, P.S. that a bomb that I just dropped about like my difficult year in 2016. A lot of my, my personal development and healing and all of that has been really crucial. And I've learned so much and my compassion has deepened and my threshold for empathy has deepened. And a lot of what I'm learning, um, in the, the aftermath is like, you know, what was a gift here? How was this happening for me and not to me? Um, Some things we don't get to understand or control. You know, we talked a little bit about that in this podcast too, about that we're not in control. And, you know, it's been three years and life is going on and things are, you know, I've been doing a lot of healing work and getting to a place where I can incorporate it into my story and share that. 
Something that really hit home for me this Scorpio season was learning as a synchronicity. The message came from a few different places and it was this message that we are wounded by our intimate relationships and we are healed through our intimate relationships. And so, yeah, that's true. You know, when I went through that difficult experience in 2016, but then was able to experience life again and feel a sense of meaning and connectedness, that's a lot of what helped heal me. Ashton is such a dear friend. I have some amazing memories of like peak experiences in my life where we were together. One of my favorites was when we were out camping together and we needed to get warm. And I saw a fire in the distance and I said to Ashton, like, you know, do you want to check out that fire? And he was like, well, there are other ways to get warm. And we started jumping up and down and like just dancing like crazy underneath the stars. And we could see them really vividly. And then, you know, in the, when we were all heated up and we had body heat again, we had this really beautiful conversation that cracked open my heart like 10,000 times. And I really, really love this human. And without further ado, this is my conversation with Ashton Cole Arnoldy. Welcome everyone. I'm here with my friend and star twin Ashton. Today was the full moon in Taurus and I feel like we both had really Venusian days. So I just got a massage in this room um, someone came over and it was just super blissful. And then it seamlessly transitioned to you coming over. <laughs> yeah, it was like clockwork. Yeah. And so you also had a pretty Venusian day. What did you do? Yeah, I, uh, well, I think the, the aspects of it that stand out in a Venusian way are um, chocolate and, uh, and having a, a voice lesson today with my teacher. Yeah. And this is especially Torian cause it was, you know, the Taurus, like getting mm -hmm. a massage, very body oriented and then singing, it's like the neck and Taurus mm -hmm. rules the neck. Yeah. Yeah. So, and we're star twins and we both have 16 degree Aries suns, both born April 6th, both met each other at California Institute of Integral Studies, signed up for all the same classes <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> without even knowing each other yet. And mm -hmm. we've been observing the outer planetary transits to our sun self-consciously for years. And mm -hmm. then we converged, which was really kind of like faith um, enlivening for me to have this experience of having like my own personal experience of being an Aries, having these transits and then to cross paths with another Aries who had also been having those transits, knowing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel the same way, especially, you know, just like thinking back to right before we got there in 2016, there was the Uranus Pluto square, both at 16 degrees of Aries Capricorn. I don't remember what date it was, but... Oh, they did go exact at 16? At 16, yeah, yeah. I didn't even know that, Ashton. Yeah, I don't I don't remember what it was, but... Wild. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so you have such beautiful ideas. I love, you know, having gotten to study with you the last few years, hearing you present, hearing your writing. So I'm really excited to have you here. And we're talking about ecological sensibility or ecologizing sensibility or you know you could talk about e ecological sensibility because um 
I would say it already exists among, and maybe in an unconscious way among everyone, but um, certainly among indigenous groups, there's already an ecological sensibility there. Um, yeah. So. So what is ecology? How do I? Ecologizing sensibility. Like, ecologizing sensibility. What is that? So um, that means for me a like fundamental reorientation in the way that um, speaking for myself, uh, I conceive of myself and my relationship to others, um, human others, non-human others, and, and experience the world in general. Um, and so ecologizing sensibility is something I find important because we're at this point in history where it has become evident to people living in the industrial West, maybe all over the world, who have uh, inherited a certain lineage of thinking uh, that um, has pitted us against the world and um, allowed us to exploit it and forget our embeddedness in it. And, and you know, up to this point where we're facing uh, the disastrous effects of climate change, uh, human accelerated climate change because it was, you know, uh, the earth has always been changing, but we have contributed to its acceleration. Right. We're going to come back to this um, because there's so much there to unpack. And before we dive into that, I would love to know a little bit more about your background. I mean, maybe some of it I will already personally know, but Uh for the listeners and also um, yeah, like, where are you coming from in this? Thank you. <laughs> so, um, well, I grew up in Arkansas and I grew up with parents who, um, I mean, they took us to the lake and took us down the river and we went camping and I just spent a lot of time outdoors playing with my neighbors. I grew up on a street with a bunch of, um, mostly girls close to my age and we were very, we were all very close. And so I was just fortunate to have this, um, almost like communal type of an experience growing up in my neighborhood. And my parents really kind of made our house the hub of that. And, um, cause other parents, the other parents of the street weren't really interested in having kids over all the time. But, um, and my mom is, I think she would appreciate me saying this. She's kind of like a big kid. <laughs> she's an artist. And I think, and she's very, she's just by nature, very philosophical. She's a son in Sagittarius. And so like, she was just always. Um, I just grew up with somebody who was pushing me to adventure and broaden my horizon and, and, you know, inclining me to question things. And also, um, I said she was an artist. My, I grew up in this town called Bryant, which is, was, um, I call it a football town. It's like very Baptist art in Arkansas, uh, central Arkansas. Um, so, uh, art was not a part of 
our elementary curriculum. And my mom was a stay at home mother and volunteered her time to basically teach art um, to the elementary school classes. So I was just always around that. And, um, and I would describe my mom as like a, she identifies as Christian, but, um, she's just, you know, not in any kind of dogmatic way. So there's always this like spiritual dimension, I think, to the art making and, um, and we grew up with a lot of animals around too. So anyway, um, just this very like barefoot, barefoot upbringing, (laughs) barefoot fingers and paints. And I, um, so I'm like wondering what all to mention in high school, I kind of duplicated or reproduced that close, like communal bonding I had with my neighbors, with another group of friends. And we especially bonded over our experiences with LSD, (laughs) you know, just, just like, um, breaking into, like a kind of transpersonal dimension to experience and also having these moments of like group telepathy that just like totally like, you know, broke through the almost like reactionary bombastic atheism that we were kind of indulging in before and nihilistic behavior. Um, so that just opened me up. And that was at the same time that I was discovering astrology and my birth chart and this whole new world opening up. Um, and, and began approaching art in a kind of magical way, um, and a way I would, an alchemical way, a way to like change myself or to continue my transformation and to like bring the magic into other people's lives. And, um, and I continued that into my undergrad where I studied film production primarily, but also um, like environmental studies and world religions and philosophy. And so there was always this, um, interplay between like a kind of, um, religiously oriented. And I, by that, I mean like just, um, religion in the sense of binding oneself back to the world, religiously oriented art making. And that's what led me to PCC or the philosophy, cosmology and consciousness program that Sabrina and I went through together at the California Institute of Integral Studies, because I wanted to discover how I could participate in the transformation of culture toward a more ecologically uh, harmonious way of being with non-humans and the planet. (laughs) So beautiful, Ashton. So this like alchemical transformation that happens through making art, like changing the self. Can you say more about that? Yeah. Um, hmm. well, so I can, I can say more by giving an example. And, um, I, the example I'll give is, um, the last big project I did Uh, in that vein was um, my capstone film upon graduating from my undergrad. And this was during the um, 2016, the Uranus Pluto square to our sons. And um, before I started working on like the actual filming of the 
the project, I, I took a, like a fairy tale cinema class. And I also took a, um, gender and, uh, and film class. And I read the second sex by Simone de Beauvoir. Um, it's an early feminist writer in the 20th century. And, um, we also read this book by Bruno Betelheim, who was a psychoanalyst and he was pulling from Freud and Jung and just analyzing fairy tales. And, um, I, I, so I grew up just as a, a queer person, like especially identifying with, um, my mom and the women around me, because just in the, the, uh, the, the kind of treatment that I received from older males, adults, males my age, made me feel in solidarity with the women that I was around. And so in a certain sense, I think that my experience of being socialized, I identified especially with, you know, like, for example, the reason I brought up Bruno Betelheim's book, The Uses of Enchantment, is because he talks about this um, uh, sleeping beauty. And just what that might, you know, in a kind of Jungian archetypal way, what that, um, how that facilitates a, a child's like coming into adulthood um, with the, like the fusion of the prince and the princess and this like um, sleeping beauty is expressive of adolescence. I can't remember it that well, but I just, there was like this light bulb that went off, you know, like kind of your, like a Uranus transit. And it was just this period where I was like, I have given up my power, you know? And like I, my whole life, um, or at least since adolescence, I've been objectifying myself or trying to make myself beautiful so as to lure in uh, someone to like love me and and to affirm my value. That's what I was like seeking to affirm my value. And I was like, I'm going to take my power back. Like, I don't need uh, to wait for the prince to climb up the tower and save me. I'm just going to jump out of the damn tower myself. And so the film that I made um, in that film, I basically enacted that. So I performed in it and I had um, my family members in it and my close friends at the time in it and basically just kind of recapitulated a compressed version of my teenage years and adolescence, but like with a spin on it and, and, and spun into it, this kind of fairy tale imagery with balconies and jumping off the balcony. But, um, upon jumping off the, you know, I guess I don't want to tell the whole thing, but, uh, rather than depending on another to reflect back to me, my own worth, I ended up portraying, um, finding it myself, uh, after breaking a kind of illusory, um, like ego identified, uh, uh, image of myself. And, and then after that, my life changed <laughs> and the, the intention was to change and have, <laughs> so that's one way. And, and to realize like a deeper, more transpersonal dimension to myself and my worth. And speaking of Venus, especially in Taurus. Uh, yes. Yeah. It's a really enchanting film. And what you were saying earlier too, I, I sense like the ecology of how you are identifying with the surroundings around you and the environment that you grew up in. Um, 
this also what you were just sharing about alchemically changing yourself through art is so fantastic and this is like some Aries magic it totally is <laughs> yeah. like I'm gonna take control or like control's not the right word but I'm going to take command of my destiny you know yes yeah yeah Uranus moving through Aries yeah totally. <laughs> um so when it comes to ecologizing our sensibility what do you feel is the contrast like what is the the world that we are leaving behind when we become more ecological. Like even though being ecological is the natural state, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Many of us have um, through conditioning and through the industrial culture strayed. So what is that? Well, um, I just read a book by this guy named um, David. Well, when he wrote the book, his name was David Michael Levin. Now his name uh, I don't know if he got married or what, but his name is now David Michael Kleinberg Levin. And then uh, before that, I'd read another book um, by a, a man named Andreas Faber. I mean, many people say what I'm going to repeat from them, but basically that like ecologizing our sensibility um, does is not like an ascetic thing. Like it's not something necessarily about like depriving ourselves. It, it, what I've come to believe is that um, ecologizing our sensibility means embracing what we like really want, and by that I mean like connection to other people, um, and like creativity and dancing and singing and and just like a deep form of intimacy with other human beings and with the world and and non-human creatures. Um, I think. Another thing that this guy, this man, David Kleinberg Levin, talks about in this book that I'm referencing, it's called The Listening Self. Um, He talks about the oculocentrism of the Western tradition since the Greeks. um, What does that mean? It means, so, oculo, like I, and then centrism... uh, you know, there's, it, according to him, and I, I think it it rings true um, that there's been an a bias uh, and a preference for vision, our our visual sense, in conceptualizing our relationship to experience, and even like in doing metaphysics. So, it sounds abstract, but it's actually like really, um, if you think about it when we can close our eyes, um, but we can't close our ears. So like if there's some kind, I mean, we can put our hands over our ears, but if there's some loud noise, we are like, just, we're being affected by it. Um, the listening is much more participatory and, uh, whereas closing vision has, gives us more control over our experience. Like, Um, If you just think about the critiques of like the male gaze, like there's something about being looked at um, that can be objectifying and controlling and um, uh, and also um, distancing. Um, There is something, too, about like the people preferring to believe in what they can see. Mm hmm. mm -hmm. And negating what can't be seen, negating the mystery, which has so many implications of negating the feminine. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
in this text that I'm mentioning, he relates listening more to the feminine and vision and like the oculocentrism to uh, the masculine. And um, so like the whole book is about um, encouraging a more of a balance, you know, because he's not saying vision's bad, you know, it's just a, a certain tendency that vision has taken and informed our conception of the world. So like for him, uh, he like talks about being like being the whole big thing. Um, he says that, uh, if we're construing things in terms of sight, it's easier for us to separate ourselves from like, from existence, from our experience to, and then to like talk about it um, in an abstract way, as if like we've captured the whole truth. And so he describes that as closing ourselves off from being or experience. Um, and, you know, he, he relates it to just this need that we have as human beings, as creatures, as animals to like, um, survive. And, uh, he ties this, this problematic, um, development of conceiving things in terms of sight alone uh, to the will to power and to the desire to maintain maintain control so like like and it's like a defensive structure so it's like the the visual bias can come through as like and just in my interactions with other people like for example if if I, let's say, I think I know who you are, you know, and if I think I know who you are, who you are, I may not be open to, um, the, your intrinsic mystery. You know, you, as our relationship deepens, if I'm open to you, I continue to experience more of you and, mm. and, you know, you continue to change and show me more of yourself. Whereas if I'm, if I've like um, abstracted this image of you from my my listening to you, my felt experience with you, then it's easier for me to um, put you in a box, basically. Whereas if we were to construe things more in terms of uh, sound, then there wouldn't be the same kind of... Uh, tendency toward separation and isolation in our conception of our relationship to each other and to like the whole world. Because the problem is this, this tendency to think of ourselves as separate from others and separate from the unfolding of the universe um, or the life of the planet. And so our actions don't affect anyone but ourselves unless we see those consequences, you know, right? Like seeing is believing. Um, whereas, go ahead. Hold on. Yeah. This is really deep stuff. So we're, <laughs> you're saying that there's certain forms of perception that objectify what it is perceiving versus mm -hmm. other forms of perception that are more relational to deepening connection and being open to mystery um, and that there's something about mm, 
So yes, connecting it to the eyes, but then even to, in terms of culture and kind of the industrial world and philosophies that have led to the industrial world, there's this sense of having, um, witnessed and maybe penetrated with our eyes and our logic, like the sun, you know, like seeing everything and being able to pull it apart and uh, dissect it in a lab and say how it works. And therefore we know it and we're not going to be open to its mysteries. Um, and this kind of consciousness, um, I mean, it's the kind of consciousness where instead of interacting with like animals in nature in a kind of curious open way there's already a story or a narrative told to us that oh the animals don't really have consciousness they don't have language and there's this weird distance um that's put up with them and we just kind of inherit that in this culture and there's something deeply bizarre about that you know a more kind of connected to the land or ecological sensibility would see everything as alive Mm -hmm. and not even question that animals have consciousness or that plants have consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. I think one of the things I really liked about that text and any, any individual who's emphasizing the psychological dimension of this conundrum is that especially like having I'll speak for myself, but like growing up in this, that the kind of milieu that you're describing, where there's this objectifying tendency toward um, that of knowledge about things and about existence itself and our relationship to existence that when, when there is an opening to the life of the universe of which we are an expression is kind of frightening because oh yeah (laughs) because it's like whoa the things that I do matter and you know (sighs) oh this gets me because people talk about being spooked out by synchronicity yeah. I'm like, how can you be spooked out by a confirmation that the universe is in alignment with you or that like magic is occurring? Like I've, it's hard for me at this point to sympathize with. And yet I also do remember the first kind of flirtations or like visitations that I had of synchronicity. It was like jolting. Mm-hmm. I mean, I found it really exciting because I was already prone to fantasy and it just, my life became like I had been living in books and living as a writer and, you know, constructing worlds and living in other fantasy worlds that other writers had constructed. So when the universe, like when my life became a storybook, because there was synchronicities and a pattern of meaning happening in my life, like it was enlivening and exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do, you know, see this in people where it's like, the moments that life starts to kind of harmonize in that way where synchronicities are happening, they get scared. And it's like, isn't it more scary to live in a world that's robotic and meaningless than a world that is like in dynamic, harmonic conversation with you, you know, but it is kind of like this call to you're pointing out their responsibility because once you live in a world that is in conversation with you, you become responsible for the kind of conversation that you're having. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Responsible to listen 
and to to there are some people who like kind of break up that word responsibility responsibility if you listen if you're like listening if you open yourself and you hear the other then you owe it to the other to to respond in a way that um doesn't destroy them or silence them and i think this is like the whole issue of um like the kind of shutting down to the magic of experience and the universe um it like comes back to this this inheritance that we're this moment in history where um there's so much trauma that has been incurred and there and so i think this this fright that people experience is related to the habits that people have needed to take on in order to maintain safety you know like whether that's dissociating or like whatever it might be but there's and it's also related to this this um you know um oculocentrism or just in the western tradition um this notion that the ego or the self is separated from the world it's like once once there seems to be meaning outside of me then it's like i lose I seem to, I lose a little bit of control, right? Or the illusion of control because we don't really have control. I mean, we have some amount of control, but I think one of the big issues is um, this, this illusion of control that for many people has been necessary to maintain over their bodies or whatever it might be in order to feel safe or to avoid situations that aren't safe. But once you get to a point where maybe you are safe, those habits might still be there, but they have to be recognized as habits that have been outgrown. Um, and I I think that in a way that is where we're at. <laughs> it, it's, it's like that's where civilization is at like there's been this like need to become i don't know that it's an intrinsic need but like this desire to gain mastery over nature um so as to survive but it's like it's pathological at this point and destroying we, we have to like realize that in in gain in gaining this um temporary not even, I put mastery in scare quotes, this illusion of mastery, there's been consequences because a, a shadow was constellated. Like the other part of who we are, the whole rest of the planet is now in jeopardy, or at least we as a species are in jeopardy. Cause I think planets kind of keep going and I think life will keep going, but who knows if we will. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we're in a candlelit room. I think that's a good time to mention that. Like, yes, yes. Just got ghost stories. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the power has been shut off here in California by PG&E because of the, the fires. Yeah, and because we have like this power grid that has this ability to light on fire when there's wind. And then yeah. if we were on solar power now, this wouldn't be an issue. Yeah. Or if like the power lines were underground, you know, if, if it were all in the hands of PG and E. Yeah. So how do you 
personally find yourself more connected to the world around you? Like, how is this manifested for you? Hmm. Hmm. Well, I would say that it's been the resolution of a difficult moment in my life uh, a few years ago where I started having a very complicated relationship to my breath and um, I I just had like a rather traumatizing experience Um, and afterwards like the, ri- the ripples of that experience, and it was in the wilderness, I was isolated by myself. Uh, the ripples of that experience came back with me into my normal life, my normal quote-unquote life. This was right before I came to the California Institute of Integral Studies. I was still in Oklahoma City at the time, but the, the event took place in Peru. And um, so... I could not, anytime I noticed my breath, I would start trying to control it because I lost faith. I, I don't, I guess I never realized that I trusted my body or maybe didn't trust my body. But at this point in my life, I lost trust in my body's wisdom. I didn't. I, I never really, I just took it for granted before, but like, I didn't trust that my body would continue to breathe itself. So I was like afraid of my own heartbeat and I would try and control my breath anytime I noticed it. And I would start hyperventilating and just being, and I would just be in this state all day of like intense anxiety. You know, this I'm sure is probably familiar to a lot of people. The only thing that would really make me feel better was prostrating and like, surrendering to the world and recognizing in the struggle with my breath that I depended on something so much more than me, you know, like I'm breathing in oxygen from this atmosphere. This is not me. Like it was just this moment where I was continually brought to my knees. And, um, so, I mean, it just continued to unfold. Just things were coming to the surface that I had really dealt with before and, that had just been pushed down, I guess. And so progress. And I was just trying to understand what was happening to me. You know, I was saying earlier, like this experience of waking up in a meaningful universe that's alive. Um, for me, it was frightening, um, because the semblance of control had been really important for me to feel safe but it had come become maladaptive <laughs> for me. And so there's been this process of unlearning that I've had to go through at, where I realized like I really have for most of my life not trusted other people or the world and just expected bad things to happen to me. And so I eventually... I. Um, entered into a relationship with someone who instead of like rejecting me and making me feel bad about myself reflected back to me 
they really saw me and, and, and it took me a while to trust what they saw. But once I started to, it started to change the way that I thought about myself. And it also taught me implicitly that I'm not separate from other people. And same with the breath, like I'm not separate from this world. And just in my studies, I've like come to appreciate the importance of, of being vulnerable and continuing to open myself up to the world. And and so this, I've just become, you know, my background's in film, but I've become especially interested in singing and music because it's so sensual, you know? Like I just, I look at people who play music together and they're just part of this like Whoa, group yeah. feeling that they're yeah. creating together. And the voice is, you know, such this beautiful way of participating you know, in an artistic way. I mean, all arts are in some way, but I think so directly singing is this, um, this relationship to more than, than myself. Um, like, you know, I'm that it's all based on my organism's interaction with oxygen, you know, the atmosphere and the modulation of, the atmosphere through the um the instrument that is myself this is so i mean you're moon and libra yes <laughs> and uh full moon baby and i'm hearing so much like yes what you're saying about musicians and the sensuality like i see that when i see musicians perform and the times where i do somehow participate in a jam session, which has been somewhat few and far between in my life um, because I don't really identify as a musician, but every now and then I'm around musicians who are like, you are a musician, everyone's a musician, here's an instrument. And they kind of like make me play with them and I end up having an amazing time. So, uh, you know, or if I'm at some kind of event where there's like a song circle, like I start to feel that groove and it feels so good. And I've noticed too about musicians that, you know, it's the lover archetype. There's like the, you know, the heartbreaker, this like, you know, <laughs> kind of like dreamy ethereal musician who's just mm -hmm. always having these like love affairs and singing about it and processing their breakups through songs and attracting new people through those songs. And just like in this like really dynamic, like lush, interconnected relationship with the universe. I mean, I even see that with musicians in terms of like how music is vibration and can translate so much to like if we're talking about law of attraction or kind of Abraham Hicks stuff and being in the vortex and kind of like being creative, like music and vibration is so primordially creative that I just see it gather up all this juicy energy and it takes people places. Um, it's incredibly Venusian, you know, um, and then to connect it back to being an Aries sun, Libra moon, this kind of dynamic of like being self-aware of like, who am I? Like, what am I playing? Like, what's my note, you know? And then also <laughs> yeah. harmonizing with what's around us and how that is this dynamic, you know, constant balance between what we relate with will change our self-concept and our self-concept and how we act will change the harmony and change like the environment. And so we're constantly breathing each other into being. Um, and that is so 
there's so much sensuality in that then I can imagine it's like almost overstimulating sometimes if you're like hyper aware of all these little subtle dynamics that are happening. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And there, then there becomes this need to like understand how to have boundaries. Yeah. <laughs> when you were talking about the uh, archetypal musician, it just, you know, made me think of Neptune and Pisces and just oh, the totally. way that's always, you know, associated with music and poetry and like Orpheus and, and yeah. And so like, Insofar as ecologizing sensibility, there's this, there's this way in which instead of closing to being or experience existence, like relating to, to our lives and to the others in the world in our lives as in a musical way, um, or, you know, like a song, like the universe. Yes. One song. You know, this actually brings in something that I like to tell, like people who are going through Libra stuff or have like a lot of Libra in their chart and they're in the indecision place <laughs> and like balancing, you know, that like. I mean, I'm happy to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know that. Principle. <laughs> it, I think it comes from this sense of there being a objective reality to which there is a objectively right and wrong. Oh, yes. And that, <laughs> the perfect order, right? Yeah. yeah. And that, so I started having this phenomenon. I've talked about it in the podcast on the episode that I recorded about my clairvoyant stuff, but with these lights that I see, mm. I used to ask them to help me make yes or no decisions. So I would give two options and I'd put my hands out and wait for a light to come <laughs> on one of my hands. Like I had to sign like my right hand is choice A, my left hand is choice B. And I, you know, see these little lights that look like stars and I'd wait for either it to land kind of near my hand or at least on that side of the room. And for the first, uh, maybe I would say a few months that I had this practice, the lights played along and they gave me like a clear, like they would pick one side. And the more that I started utilizing this practice of like, cool, these lights are helping me make decisions when I give them two <laughs> options, <laughs> they started to light up on both sides. And I was like, <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Even if I asked like things and gave the opposite and I was like, they're both lit up. Like, <laughs> what the fuck? You got to give me like something more than this. And I started to really like, you know, so I was talking to the lights more and it was like, so literally both options are like good and okay. And I would see a light. It's like, Oh, so the, there was an illusion that there was a right or wrong, mm. see a light. Mm -hmm. And so that doesn't mean that right and wrong or like morals, cause on some sense, certain things like are wrong. Mm -hmm. Like you can imagine, like conjure up a really cruel thing to do. And part of you tenses up and you're just like, Oh, what an awful thought. Like, no, don't do that. That's wrong to you. You know, so I'm not saying that it's like this is a, a universe where there's just complete, mm -hmm. you know, moral relativism or anything like that. But that when we're making choices, we're harmonizing with potential streams of reality. And it's not so much about like objectively picking the right one, but it's just about playing the music of mm. the moment mm -hmm. and listening. Right? Yeah. yeah. And going with that. 
and not getting so hung up on this kind of like frozen objective, like this is the, mm-hmm. the right decision. And if you get into that flow state of being musical or being harmonious with life itself, most of the time, you're not going to be agonizing over what you could have, should have mm-hmm. done, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, you know, it reminds me of that what David Michael Clamberg Levin calls oculocentrism, just like this, this notion. I mean, I think it's, it's intimately tied to this way of conceiving of the world and truth, truth itself, because truth construed in terms of sight is um, unambiguous. Like it's that it's like an object basically. So like, Truth corresponds to this one thing, right, rightness, goodness, um, and the image of rightness or goodness, this tendency to like look at something in the abstract um, and to treat things as if, like, the, for example, truth or making a decision that there is this one corresponding reality that is the the right option to choose, whereas if we're listening and open to experience, it becomes less of something that we're standing around pondering as if we're separate from and more of like an intuitive nod in the direction that the way, the direction that things are flowing. Ah, I don't know. Okay, this, I had a memory, um, and I haven't, it's like a new connection to this memory, but I had a really um, significant philosophical breakthrough in my undergrad. It was my freshman year of college, and I was smoking a lot of weed. Um, And so I had some truly psychedelic experiences in that state, but During one of these times, uh, my friends and I got this idea to get like really high and watch dinosaur documentaries. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that tapped in to some kind of like very primordial, like dinosaurs are primordial, you know, in a literal and metaphorical sense. And I had like, you know, this like really intense kind of like psychic or intrapsychic connection to these dinosaurs as I was like in this very open state watching these dinosaur documentaries. But I learned from this documentary that the the flying dinosaurs, are they called pterodactyls? Oh, yeah. 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 That they apparently have eyeballs the size of basketballs. And because of that, they can see as clearly as we see, like our kind of 2020, four miles ahead. And in that moment, it occurred to me, I was like, human arrogance. Like, (laughs) (laughs) we think that we know things because we perceive things when actually the hardware through which we are perceiving is somewhat you know, it's subjective. Mm -hmm. It's ultimately subjective because there are pterodactyls with eyes the size of basketballs who see differently than us. Yes. And so we create these 
um, machines or these tools to and you, even telescopes or whatever. We're creating these things to gather empirical data. And yet we mm-hmm. are interpreting the data and mm-hmm. we are inherently, you know, limited. So that's what I thought at the time. And then since then, though, with like starting to see these lights and having the extrasensory things, I also realized that, you know, yes, we do have a particular hardware and software and consciousness that filters our perception, yet there's always an edge. There's always this kind of like numinous opening to perceive and feel more that comes from, I think, connecting with something beyond us, like prayer. If we honestly, earnestly ask the universe for a vision, we may have an idea that bubbles up. And if we're trained to think that that's our own consciousness happening privately inside of our own brains, we'll just be like, oh yeah, I just thought of that. But no, maybe you thought of it because you asked the universe for assistance. Maybe you were given a dream, you know, and to start thinking of it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, So that happened later, some years after, but it was first that dinosaur documentary where I just realized that I don't know how humans say they know th- certain things so certainly when we mm-hmm. are not admitting just our inherent structural mm-hmm. biases based on our own biology, which I mean, maybe this has been addressed, but well, and it certainly is with oculo oculocentrism. Yeah. yeah, totally. I mean, it's addressed philosophically, but it's still is the dominant perspective. You know, if you just think about the way science is talked about. Did this sound like a really bad idea or is it? A no, no, okay. no, 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 no. I think, no, no, totally. That, that's it. I, when you were speaking about the, the differences in the way that our sensory apparatus would incline us to conceive the world versus the pterodactyl, it made me think of this word multinaturalism. And so there are many worlds, right? Because there are many perceivers and, and we're all in the world rather than being outside of it. But there's been this pretension in, at least in Western civilization, um, especially represented by a certain kind of science, I would call it scientism that assumes we have some sort of objective lens onto the world, um, outside of the world. We, you know, like, you know, it kind of goes back to Descartes where the, the self was separated from the body and the world. Um, and in contrast, and I think this is, you know, you were getting at this, in one way, but there's a way like a, we just read in um, in one of my courses at CIIS, we just read uh, some some texts about Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, who was alive during the 18th century, I believe. And he um, was most noted f- for his poetry and his contribution to German literature, but he was also a scientist and he put forth um, a very uh, sophisticated understanding of science that that didn't take the human observer outside of the observation. So instead of pretending that we can achieve some sort of like 
certain understanding of the universe uh, by just not trying, trying not to project our subjectivity onto it, our secondary properties. It was like, we should actually develop our human instrument to its fullest capacity because we are of this world and this world is obviously intelligible. It makes sense. And I think Einstein was one of the people, he said something like one of the most mysterious things about the universe is that it makes sense. And that I think implied in that assumption is that there's this separation of us as intelligent beings from the universe. Whereas Goethe was emphasizing that if we, if we develop ourselves fully, and I think this is expressed um, by many in indigenous cultures and is related to the, um, the transpersonal dimension that you were referring to, that there is a way we can know the world, maybe not in the same kind of mastery, certainty way that is construed by scientism, but but that we could feel, feel the world from inside of it. That's beautiful. That is reminding me of, um, Marina Abramovich. Yeah. Yeah. She's great. She, um, her memoir, I was listening Ooh. to it, um, audio and it's her speaking, which really? is amazing. Like oh it's really God. cool to hear her narrate her own story. Um, but she had this, she and her partner, art partner wanted to, live with, um, Aborigines and they, it took them a little bit to, um, make friends and communicate their intentions, um, and be invited to participate. And once she was spending time and like living with Aborigines, she started to see them on the dream plane and they started to have psychic connections that were happening, um, and communications that were happening in the dream world and telepathically. And it's been a little while since I've heard this. So, um, the particular details are not as uh, clear at the moment, but what strikes me about that is that there's these certain capacities that are innate. Like when we were, um, on the nature and arrows trip together, which is part of, um, the, philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness program, we get to have this like mystical retreat out in nature. And Brian Swim, um, who teaches that, um, um, there's this, you know, his teachings are about how the forces of the cosmos, the cosmological powers, if you will, permeate through the human, that there's actually these, you know, all the creativity, all the passion, etc., that we feel is actually coming from the primordial flaring forth of the universe itself, which I feel like makes sense to anyone who's had passionate or like obsessive feelings about something. It's nice to know that you're actually feeling the cosmos and not just your own personal psychology. Yeah. And so there's this phenomenon where if you are sleeping in a tent and there's just a thin layer of tent, you know, sleeping bag, a few blankets maybe between you and the earth, or you could sleep directly on the earth, take a nap in the grass, that your dreams are going to be different than the dreams that you have inside your house. Because your dreams aren't just coming from your brain, 
you know, Mm -hmm. to begin with, there's this capacity to dream with the earth. And when it comes to also um, human connections, you know, I thoroughly believe that we are telepathic creatures. Um, If you are thinking about someone a lot, they will probably on some level hear you. And it doesn't mean that they are actually registering because this is not our cosmology in this culture that, oh, this person must be thinking of me, but that person will come up in your mind a lot, you know? And so there's a strange, um, you know, thing about that too, where it's like, if you're thinking negatively or some of someone or you're obsessing over someone who's maybe it's not a, um, a mutual thing, they may still get the page that you're sending them, but they're going <laughs> to feel annoyed. Like that you're coming up in their mind and they're just like, Oh, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's actually like, uh, this conversation that's happening telepathically. And we don't talk about that as a normal thing. And yet there's other cultures Um, or other subcultures, you know, even like spiritual communities or whatever that, you know, know that that's part of our existence. And in terms of having, you know, dreams with the earth, that the earth dreams us that when we um, are in a communal space, or even if people want to do a dream circle, and they start to share their dreams with a particular circle of people, people's dreams are going to start to shift and change. And you'll start to dream for your community and you'll have visions Mm -hmm. that you're not just dreaming your personal dream. If you share your dream in a village or you share your dream with the person who appeared in your dream, you're actually being ecological and dreams Mm -hmm. are one of the, the things that we have like, uh, I don't know the proper word to use um, in this context, but it's kind of like we've uh, put them in such a small box. Um, We think that they belong to us or that they're happening inside of our brain, but they're actually part of something naturally, innately ecological. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I think that's a really important piece of ecologizing sensibility because we go back to Descartes and then a little bit, maybe around the same time. I don't remember exactly the dates, but. Um, his visions came in a dream, right? His visions <laughs> came in a dream, I think. Um, that's what I've heard. But Galileo, who in some ways created um, a scientific counterpart to the separation of mind, human ego from body and world. He, he's the one who put forth this notion of secondary and primary qualities. Who and, did? Um, Galileo. Um, and he, so for him, the whole, like the true language of the universe is mathematics. And that's what's primary. What's secondary is everything that we contribute through our meaning making capacities and our, you know, our sense I didn't experience. know that about Galileo. Yeah. So, but he was also very religious too. So this was never like, he, he didn't say that was like the final answer, but th- this was part of his method. And then yeah. after Galileo, people took that on and believed it. So like he was treating more, he was treating a certain way of doing science as a method, but wasn't saying necessarily that this is the total truth. But then after Galileo, people started doing science and talking about the world as if the way that they were conducting science tells the whole truth about the world. So primary qualities are the real, real thing, whereas secondary qualities our experience of meaning and our sense experience are not really real, you know? 
And so it just, it gets to that, what you were talking about, like in regards to dreaming and, you know, our experience of obsession or passion is not separate from the universe. We are expressions of the universe. So this is, this is what people have called integral ecology, where ecology is not just about the science of climate change and the extinction of species um, or biology. It's also the humanities and it's also our dreams and it's everything because there's no separation between our interior, interior lives with scare quotes and the exterior world. What do you think are some of the uh, like radical implications or potentials of not being separate from the world around us in terms of moving forward in a healthy or even perhaps utopic way with the unfolding of reality at this point? Well, I was thinking earlier, I think one thing I could mention first is when you were talking about just the times that you've participated in jam sessions or singing, like someone told me, some person who was talking to me about um, a trauma expert, you know, I don't have evidence of this, but it it seemed very, um, it just held true for me intuitively. And she, this woman that was sharing this with me was rooting it in some kind of scientific study. But what she was saying was that um, see, there, are, there are a few things that help to heal um, emotional brain trauma, which is what most people have. It's just, you know, we, we all have hardships coming into this world and develop habits in order to, you know, feel safe. You know, it doesn't matter what happens to us. It's all kind of relative in a sense, but everybody for the most part experiences trauma. I mean, being born can be a traumatic experience. So, and so that's what she described as, as emotional brain trauma. And a few of the things that she was saying that helped to resolve that are singing together, singing with other people and dancing with other people, dancing together, and also getting our hands dirty and getting healthy soil under our nails. So there's something about things, aspects of who we are, just intrinsically human things like singing and dancing together that actually have emancipatory potential. And by that, I mean, they, they can create intimacy and help us to overcome the obstacles within ourselves that keep us closed off from other people, which I think is one of the major drivers of this civilization. Like everybody is being... So many people slave their wives, their their slave their wives away, slave their lives away every day just to survive and make a living to support themselves and their families. Nobody has time to just be, and much less to like to deepen into intimacy with others in a in a like safe containers and. So I, I guess I just have this faith in, in this newfound faith, really, in our intrinsic desires to, for connection 
and community that, you know, that if we were to just heed that and if more people would reject the the system in a way, and by that mm-hmm. I mean like if we could somehow make conditions for ourselves and for others to support others in doing this too, where we just had time to like relax or uh-huh. try to relax. Yes. And because that's, that's another thing. It's like this pace. It's like a trauma response. Everybody's just busy all the time, you know, like, and like constantly got to be productive. There's like, there's this general that's barking behind our heads all the time. Like you're not doing enough. You're not beautiful enough or whatever it is. That just keeps us, keeps business unfolding as usual, business, business as usual. But what I think we really have to do is just slow down and feel the, feel where we're at in the Saturn Pluto kind of no exit frightening time to get over to the other side. But first we like have to like have time to feel things. And I think if we, felt things, it would be easier for us to empathize with other people. And, you know, maybe you and I don't really have as much of an issue empathizing with the experience of the suffering of another, but I think a lot of people are totally blocked off from that. And I think, not to like psychologize everyone, but I think for a lot of people who live that way, it is rooted in their own traumas that have informed how they live their lives. And Right. I just really appreciate what you're pointing out about um, having time to just be. I think that that's um, if we look at the, you know, polarities and I know that that, you know, these could be construed in different ways, but kind of the masculine and feminine and that part of the, this being in a patriarchal or control-based culture. And I don't think that the masculine itself is, um, yeah, controlling inherently. Yeah. It's like the wounded or shadow masculine and that the, there's a wound then to the feminine, which is about, you know, they're both wounded in this, but a wound around like not just having time to be and to luxuriate and that it's actually when we um, have time to be sensual, to play, to Mm -hmm. just be that we um, get in touch with our channel, our divinity. And that in a system that is kind of, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this um, because of seeing um, Shaman Durek speak at he came to CIS. Oh, he did? Yeah. Um, cool. And he has this podcast, Ancient Wisdom Today, which is one of my favorites. But he was saying that, you know, he talks about the matrix and like mm. um, how things are designed in this system to, you know, like work people too hard. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, they're worn out. They come back and it's like your condition to just come home and like get in your tube basically and watch Netflix instead of having like intellectual conversations with people or like, um, going Mm -hmm. to the park and like having a picnic and whatever. It's like that we, yeah, we are trained. We're kind of conditioned to disconnect 
And that that is actually, you know, that keeps the matrix alive and functioning and that it's when we connect Mm -hmm. um, both with ourselves and our free time and with other people that we are, you know, building a new world. And I've just been thinking so much about this in the context of like, you know, when I was on the precipice of like finishing up undergrad, undergrad and being kind of knowing that I was going to be out in the world after that, that I, I felt like there was so much on the line. Like, I mean, astrologically at that age, um, people, you know, young adults are having both a Saturn square, Saturn, Saturn square, natal Saturn, and Uranus square, natal Uranus. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a very stressful time where you both are realizing that you have to function as a member of society and the culture around you. And you want to follow your design, your innate blueprint of creativity. And there's this immense, you know, that desire to be liberated as well as the pressure to get a job fit in, Mm -hmm. you know, do it right. And that when I was in that moment, not aware of the astrological implications of it, I just felt this burning sense of like, I need to do something that I love for a living or I don't know how, like, I just can't even you know, deal like the psychological terror to me of like having to do something that I didn't want to do. And it's like, I'm very blessed, Mm -hmm. you know, and I've had privilege in this situation, but it's just when I picture and like really feel into the matrix or the way that things are set up to make it very difficult for people that we kind of, um, have to free ourselves and have to free each other from these very disempowering systems that keep us from just simply being and having the time to be Mm -hmm. like, that is so crucial. Yeah. Yeah. And this, the culture really perpetuates guilt around that. Yeah. We have to totally let that go. I feel like Like guilt is such a devil on the shoulder energy. And I feel like it's, I mean, we can just be relaxing and feeling good. And there's this voice that's like, you don't deserve this. Like you should be doing something else. And it's like that, that's a mind training game. Cause I, I really feel like it's deconditioning or unlearning. Yeah. All all the, just what we picked up swimming in the culture. Right. Especially as young, young, young people. Um, it, uh, yeah, it should not be leisure and time to do nothing should not be a privilege. And, you know, I have been born into a position, you know, just as a, a white male with the kind of middle-class background, um, to have that privilege. And it's not fair, you know, it's not fair to other people who don't have that, who don't have that, you know, whether it's like my mom as an example of someone who rejects the, the, the be productive all the time attitude, or it's my, you know, just my economic situation. It, I just, I think it's really important to look to, these more indigenous ways of living with the land, because I don't know of any indigenous groups that spend most of their time working. You know, I guess like 
the generalization that I'm familiar with is that that's like a very small portion of their day gathering food or whatever it might be. Um, but the rest of the day is not spent and like slaving uh, enslaved time. And it's also, it's like a different experience of time too, because in this context, we've mechanized time. So yeah. Much. And it's yeah. linear and like, it's basically chasing us and we're subject to it. Whereas if we were really, you know, just to bring Brian's cosmological powers back into the conversation, if we were really experiencing ourselves as the universe itself, then we would know that we are, that time is in us. It's not something that we're subject to. And like time is the unfolding of cosmic creativity. It's like, it's like listening to and playing along with the music of its unfolding rather than um, trying to race to the finish line. <sighs> <laughs> wow. These are some, I feel like we um, like climbed into this hole of kind of like the, the trappings of the industrial consciousness. And yeah. it gets me like actually, you know, like fired up and I'm, I'm watching that happen in my like body and my levels of enthusiasm and like uh, anger mm. that comes up with this because in a day to day, like moment to moment sense, I'm, I feel pretty peaceful and relaxed and I, I really like focus on what makes me happy so consistently that usually, I mean, I might tend towards, you know, my struggle that I work with is like depression and I have like a really good, you know, good habits around that, but I'm more likely to, um, in a moment by myself, either be pleasantly contented or like, uh, depressed and then mm -hmm. pulling myself up out of that. I don't feel a ton of anger and frustration in my, in my free time. Right. <laughs> but when I think about the system or the matrix, that is what gets me angry. And it's, um, it's interesting because it doesn't um, it's not always brought to the forefront of my consciousness because I think that I've been really lucky. And also I've, you know, I've been able to design a lot of aspects of my life. And when I think about, you know, the matrix and like whatever, like I think the way that I want to help people uh, get out of the matrix or be liberated um, is really through consciousness because I, I know certain things like the word is our wand and the way that we think mm -hmm. our mindset actually, you know, subtly influences. It's like tuning into different frequencies. Um, it was studying astrology. It was like getting into magic and mysticism that gave me new ways of thinking and about interacting with reality that were far different than what I was taught was possible, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that knowledge is power and that, spreading ideas um about freedom whether it's mm -hmm. like freedom of the mind or freedom of spirit are a really important part of this um i've been thinking about this a lot actually lately um one other thing you know it's getting late here mm -hmm. and we are going to cook some dinner which is <laughs> yeah. like another uh, venusian part of our day mm -hmm. um so before we do that ashton do you feel like there's um any other things that you want to add well, maybe just to wrap up on the note that you 
played just then about the frustration and the anger. I've been feeling something like that too lately. Just like this feeling of refusal. I think Carolyn Cook, an author, and she was once our professor at the same time. She she was like, she, I just really like this, this just to refuse, this refusal. Like I'm just very about that right now. And I mean, I think there's a healthy way to do that, which is not to like be nihilistic and blow things up, but like to refuse to subject ourselves to that enslaving time. And, and just to, to look around and be like, this world could be different. And how can I, yeah. Yes. Yes. And how, how could I, (laughs) how could I refuse to perpetuate what has led to the way things are at this moment so that I can then transmit a dream of otherwise and make it a reality. How can we do that? <laughs> Beautiful. I feel like a, a Mars fist pump from my heart to the entire cosmos right now. Aries yeah. to Aries. Um, thank you so much, Ashton, for coming onto the show. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. It's been, it's been very fun. <laughs> Ashton, how can people find you? You can find me at www.re-enchant.me. And that's R-E-E-N-C-H-A-N-T dot M-E, re-enchant me. Ashton's a very enchanting person, as you may have already felt in this conversation, but also Ashton's writing is amazing. And sometimes like I really, truly tear up when I hear you read what you write. So please, if you're listening to this, go treat yourself to some very poetic and enchanting language and ideas. you for listening. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. If you take a screenshot of your review before you click submit and then email that image over to me at sabrina at monarchastrology.com, I will take down your email and I'm working on a free gift to send to our podcast reviewers as a thank you for reviewing the podcast. And in addition to that, I also want to say that going and reviewing the podcast um, is a way to, you know, if you enjoy this podcast, it's a way to share your support. When this show gets more ratings and more reviews, it will get pushed up um, for people to find when they're browsing podcasts. And so you'll actually really help this show get exposure, which helps me continue to do what I'm doing and helps bring people over to monarchastrology.com. And if you are listening to this and you've gotten this far and you haven't read my weekly forecast yet, that's at monarchastrology.com. There's forecasts every week about the alignment of the planets. And I've been doing that since 2015 and writing about astrology since before then as well. And you know, this is my soul work. This is the work of my heart and something that I love to do. And when you leave a review and tell your friends about this podcast or tell your friends about monarchastrology.com, you really help me do what I love to do and to also support you in sharing these messages and downloads and 
conversations and education about astrology. That's another thing I want to point out is that I'm teaching an astrology course in January. If if you go to monarchastrology.com and click on the tab that says study, you'll be brought to the course page and the dates are to be announced in January. And if you sign up for my mailing list at monarchastrology.com, you'll be informed of when the course opens for enrollment. I can't wait to share this education with you. I've been teaching this course since I would say late 2017. And we've run the course four times. This will be the fifth run. And it's been really a game changer and a transformation for people. And some of those transformation stories are on the course page. So you can learn more about how this course has affected people. And the course is designed to help you really deepen your connection to astrology, whether you are a astrology novice, you're already a student, or you're even a practitioner. This course is really all levels and it's about the evolutionary perspective. So it's a specific technique that gets into the soul and karma and past lives. There's a lot of teachings like the wisdom teachings of the signs, how to step into higher octaves of the archetypes and teachings about how to live astrologically in a life enhancing way, how to live out our charts, um, live out our potential using the language of astrology and how to get past limiting beliefs too that we have about ourselves because of interpretations that we have about our chart, whether we came up with them ourselves or we heard them somewhere else. It's really important to kind of collaborate with the cosmos and have a participatory relationship with astrology. And that's a value that I bring to my courses. So go check that out. Thank you for listening to this podcast. And I hope that you have a beautiful and blessed day. Mm -hmm.